going to a corner spot near you. It's the sidewalking, rap talking, hip hop sister. No need to try me, miss. Do you got Rob's goat for it? We need no chorus. Freestyles coming from the door. And who's testing the untestable? Styles flexible. You're going to have to bounce 12 rounds. TKO by the third. Fuck what you heard. I didn't feel like playing a rap. Cause you was part time with a part rhyme. Committing no crimes. And claiming to be hard on the block. So feel my I 
Bro Diallo Show, Q4 Radio, AM 1680. Tune in app, iTunes Radio, and of course, Q4.org. Archived at DiallocKenyatta.com. Broadcasting live on Facebook at Diallo Kenyatta and YouTube at Diallo Kenyatta. If you do prefer to catch your Bro Diallo Show, or at least segments of the Bro Diallo Show broadcast live on YouTube, Please give us a like and a subscribe. Help to boost us in the analytics because I have all but confirmed with all certainty that there is an effort to not only suppress progressive leftist radical analysis on social media platforms, but there is also a particular conspiracy to suppress black radical voices. And if you need confirmation of that, man, just get on somewhere because that's been the case since emancipation and before anyway good morning everyone welcome to the bro diallo show did i mention i'm broadcasting straight out of the q4 studios in the state of the city of chirac the state of drill illinois in the united states of america on the over siege under siege planet earth i'm so happy that you're here with me on this first business day following uh the spring equinox daylight savings time oh i have to play i always miss the opportunity to play that that raga raga roots reggae daylight saving time i have to find that song and play it but now it's too late i gotta wait till next year or wait i have to wait till the fall to play daylight saving time anyway i should still be in bed got no business sitting here in this chair this damn early in the morning. But when the clock flips, that you know, that's that's uh remote control, synthetic genetic, command your soul, automatic. What is it? I, I, I let me not try to remember anything. Let, let me just stay on the script. That ain't that well written out anyway. Because I go off script and, you know, I say some things I didn't have to say, and then I say end up saying them again if I have to. Anyway, first thing I want to talk about is uh I don't know. What's the opposite of a shout out? I'm sending out uh, sympathy to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley, man, who uh, tried to, to, to pull out the black card, tried to pull out the race card and wanted to cry foul for a PBS, public broadcasting system. Tavis Smiley was uh, let go of um, a couple of years. I mean, this case has been going on well over a year. Uh, approaching two years where he had sued um, PBS for unlawful termination and and violating his contract. And PBS countersued him and they came back with a countersuit. And the uh, judge determined that Tavis Smiley was not only lawfully let go, but he should face a penalty for bringing a lawsuit and besmirching the good name of public broadcasting system. And they charged, told Tavis Smiley, he has to pay his employer $1.5 million. And just let that be a lesson to you. Cause Tavis Smiley is a public figure, a well-respected journalist and a celebrity, you know, cause you can't just be a public scholar anymore. You can't just be a journalist. If you're in the public eye and you don't reach celebrity status, you, you, you out. So everybody in the public eye has to move and maneuver like a celebrity. 
I think it greatly diminishes the overall quality of our journalism and our scholarship. But I digress. So, but let that be a warning to us regulars, us normies, us proletariats. You know, these, these companies are fighting back. I know at least two other people just around the way, folks. I ain't getting into nobody's business if you're not a public figure. But I know two other people that brought lawsuits. One against an employer and one against an uh, entity that they didn't work for, but they had some financial ties through through contracts. And they sued black folks and those companies that even though they were wrong, they countersue. So they don't just defend themselves from lawsuits now. They countersue you. And I don't know if you've been following this, but the right wing Heritage Foundation, the Koch brothers and the Koch Foundation, Alec, there's been a right wing effort to pack the ju- pack the judiciary with right wing judges, pro business judges, pro industry judges, racist judges. It's not just the Supreme Court that is balanced towards the right. And you can't even say the right wing that is balanced towards the far right fascist end of the spectrum. So you got local judge right now. There's about a dozen judges on the on the ballot and and. These right wing foundations who don't have numerical superiority, they have economic. They got more money, but they don't have their values and their agendas are not popular with the public, not even uh, baseline white masses. Support what or, or views or agendas or values align with Koch brothers or private wealthy interest. So anyway. Courts at all levels, because they found out that the public does not pay attention to judicial elections. They don't pay much attention to the judiciary. That is tired. It's 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 as long as, you know, they're locking up black boys. Wholesale. People figure the judges are doing their job, but they don't understand that judges don't just lock up black folks. That's that's one of their jobs mass incarcerating black people, but they have other jobs such as determining the constitutionality and legality of everything from how much pollution can be admitted into our environment to settling labor disputes to uh, uh, issues of egress, um, public uh, domain and imminent domain issues, zoning issues. So the legal system, possession is nine-tenths of the law. So criminal justice is actually just only a fraction of the law. So even though we pay attention to high-profile cases, R. Kelly just got hit with another federal case. They, they, he got cases in New York, California, Chicago. You know, hell, I'm, I'm waiting for the U.N. to come in with international war crimes against uh, R. Kelly. I'm not being sympathetic. I'm just saying these type of cases, Bill Cosby, you know, high profile divorce cases, you know, the baby just smacked some black woman at his show. That's going to be a case. I'm sure there's a bunch of ambulance chasers at that woman's door trying to get. So we pay attention to that. But all these other cases about how much mercury we can have emitted and how much exhaust this fight. There's an ongoing fight between emission standards, whereas California wants to have the high emissions standards. They want cars that don't emit so much pollution from the exhaust tank. They want subsidies 
and encourage people to drive electric cars. Or even they want to incentivize public transportation over personal or private conveyance. And they know that California is one of the largest automobile markets in the world. So automobile makers, if they have to meet California standards, those by default become national standards. So there are fights about literally in the courts about how much pollution. And when you say how much auto pollution uh, cars can emit, you're talking about how much asthma, how many respiratory diseases, low birth rates. Learning disabilities have been linked to environmental pollution. So you're asking how much social uh, degradation. But we don't pay attention to those cases because there are no, no breasts, no penises, no vaginas. There's no salacious details, no tea to sip. You know, the, the utility companies overcharging us, privatizing. Utility companies claiming they can't do repairs to upgrade the the infrastructure, but they're giving dividends to their stockholders. And those corrupt, there are journalists and and, and court cases on that all over the place. And you don't hear about it because no titties. I guess I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to be dignified. I'm trying to, you know, they don't say they're not over on NPR saying titties. So no, no, no genitals no big name entertainers no celebrities associated with utility company fraud so anyway all i'm saying is the courts the 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 right wing elites have found out that who cares who the legislature is who cares who's making the laws who cares if a president can sit up there and advocate for a platform when a judge an unelected judge or an elected judge that nobody pays attention to can render those laws, those regulations null and void. Hit his gavel. Boom. So anyway, I'm just using the Tavis Smiley case because Tavis Smiley admitted to having sex with numerous subordinates. And I didn't even know businesses could have moral clauses in contracts, but Tavis Smiley apparently had uh, a moral clause in his uh, contract. So he couldn't be, oh, where I'm from, my home, we used to call it clinching. We could, he couldn't be having sexual relations with subordinates. That's violate his moral clause, which is another curious thing. Cause I remember reading in uh, America, uh, the, the people's history of the United States, when women first started entering the workforce, they were limited to very specific jobs like school teaching. And when a woman would go and get a job as a school teacher, she would have to sign this contract. And because she was in front of children, she had to be of the highest moral standards. So these adult women who worked these jobs, they weren't allowed to go to certain places. Like if you were a school teacher and you were seen at a bar or if you were seen in the red light district of your city, you could be fired from your job. If you were out after certain hours, they could give adult people uh, what do you call it? Um, curfews. You could be banned from consuming alcohol, not at school, but at all in your entire life. You can't come home on a Friday evening and have a glass of wine because if someone caught you, you could be fired. 
You know, this is really interesting. So these moral clauses, you couldn't cohabitate with a man that you weren't married to. Some of these contracts for, for women in the workforce required women to remain single because they felt once a woman got married, she couldn't teach school because she had to go and tend to her husband, which is God's will. That woman only exists as a living incubator. And when she's not giving birth, she be, should be serving a man. If not her father, her older brothers. If not her older brothers, her uh, husband. If she has no father and no husband, she's pointless. Don't, hey, I didn't, I didn't make that the dogma. Holla at your God if you don't think that's the right way to be. But anyway, so now corporations are exercising more and more rights over our personal lives. And it came to, 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 to pass that when, when Bloomberg was running for president, we're finding that women who break the glass ceiling, women who get these high advanced degrees, women who wear these power suits, you know, who got the corner office with the view and all these plaques and awards and degrees, we're finding that those women are being told, you know, we got a major project. We're trying to negotiate a major deal. Don't get pregnant. If you get pregnant, kill it. Have an abortion, forced or coerced abortion. So on one side, you got right wing scumbags, elites trying to deny you your rights to 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 safe abortion, legal safe abortion. On the other side, you got right wing elites or sometimes left wing elites like Bloomberg, right wing, fraudulent left wing elites telling you trying to force you to exercise your constitutional right to abortion to help save their profit margin or elevate their profit margins. So you're getting it on both sides. You go from denial of abortion to coerced, forced abortion. So anyway, the, a long story short, this is an interesting part of this. is number one, black people, be mindful. I mean, when you're a victim of racism, discrimination, especially by multinational corporations or private, large, well-funded, uh, not-for-profits or institutions like PBS, NPR. They're not just content with trying to deny you justice. They're going to penalize you for seeking justice. They come in with the countersuits. And that the court, the judiciary, is heavily slated towards the right wing. There are a lot of overt racist fundamentalist Christian right-wingers ideologues on the course who don't care about the merits of the case. And this is at all levels, criminal, civil law, state, federal, regional, uh, appellate courts. They have all been heavily packed with right-wing judges that are not sympathetic to the plight and struggles of people. And Tavis Smiley, he's he was a test case. Because even though he was not accused of coercion, accused of uh subverting, intimidation, or any of the things that are traditionally uh associated with the Me Too, move, Me Too movement. But the fact that he violated the moral clause and the fact that a soulless corporation can dictate to individuals what is moral and what is not inside and outside of your your work 
even though you haven't violated the laws of the land and maybe you have not violated your own personal code of conduct and ethics, the corporation can impose a whole new morality on you. So just interesting. Might be something you want to look at. Because he had relationships with subordinates. And but there was, that was not even the, the crux of the case. And now he went in there to sue his company. Uh, he went in there to sue his company and they was like. Uh, you got to pay. You got to pay the company you sued for wasting their time for having the audacity. So anyway. Interesting case. And. Uh. And I'm not weeping for Tavis Smiley. I don't think what he did was right. But if you know anything about law, the the the, the most popular thing within the arena of law is precedence. So if they can do that to Tavis, imagine what they could do to me or you who ain't got a million dollars and have a recognizable face all across the globe. In South Africa, uh, there have been... There's an emerging scandal related to forced sterilization. And I'm not and I know y'all want to go all the way back to 87, 88, 89, 90 to to the apartheid government. To the apartheid government of South Africa. But no, this is 2020. The BBC has reported in uh, February 27, 2020. That. Public health institutions have been performing uh, secret and and forced sterilization. And a secret sterilization is even more insidious than a forced sterilization on black women in South Africa. And they're finding that so far 15 different health facilities and hospitals across South Africa have been implicated dating back to 2001. Long after white minority rule was quote-unquote abolished, which it hasn't been. Long after Nellie Mandela. Nellie Mandela took the presidency and y'all was singing and dancing in the street. I was living in New York when the ticker tape parade for Nellie Mandela. Nelson Mandela is one of the biggest sellouts. You know, he was Obamaing before Obama. But I digress. I'm not going to get into Mandela's disgraceful legacy. And the fact that we still celebrate Mandela is a shame. Shows just how low information we are. But anyway, I was talking about forced sterilization and and secret sterilization. And how forced sterilization isn't as bad as secret sterilization. There was a woman, and I, forgive me for these names. For my pronunciation, my, 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 my Western, I've, I was deprived my mother tongue for many generations. But a woman, uh, one of one of 48 that's currently uh, part of a suit, uh, Bongji Kaili uh, Misibi, M-S-I-B-I, said that she went in when she was a teenager at 17. Uh, she gave birth. She was a teenage mother and she gave birth to a child at 17 and she went on to give birth to a healthy child, raise up this child, 
go stay in school, develop a career, secure a home. And she got married. So she was a teenage mother who went and stayed and walked the line, made a life for herself and her daughter, wanted to get married as an adult. 11 years later, so she was uh, 37, and she married and wanted to have another child before her biological clock ran out. And she and her husband were trying to conceive, and they were just having trouble. So the man went and got his stuff checked out. They said, everything's working right with you. You know, sperm count. You know, the thing they do when, when men have issues, you know, they have you wear boxer drawers and sit on ice cubes and various things they have to do to increase the man's potency and fertility. And then she was like, well, maybe I should get checked out, too. But she was like, I already had a child. So, I mean, it's it's not that I have reproductive issues. And when, when she went in, they found out that her uterus was removed. When she gave birth to that teenage child, the physicians at that hospital determined that because she was a young mother, obviously because she was not responsible enough to avoid getting pregnant before she reached legal adulthood, it would be best that they make the decision for her that she have no more children. So she was not forcibly sterilized. Well, it is a, a form of force if you don't know. But even with a forced sterilization, you know that you're, you're, you, you've been sterilized. They say, well, we're going to coerce you. Like there's some coerced sterilization. They're even, they were paying back in the 80s and 90s on the West Coast. They were paying women who had addiction issues. They were giving them 100 desperate women as little as a hundred, between 100 and $350 to, to be sterilized. And many women who were not in their best minds, who didn't have proper representation, who were afflicted with the disease of addiction, took that offer and that's coerced that's forced but at least those women knew hey i'm being rendered infertile when you're on the table thinking you're just have ungoing under and say we're about to give you a c-section and as they take the child or you go in because of fibroids or you go in for some other a tonsillectomy and they cauterize your fallopian tubes that's a whole nother level of wickedness you know, she said, I woke up giving birth, looked down and asked, why do I have a huge bandage on my stomach? I did not mind. I had just given birth to my baby daughter. She was a big baby and I had been anesthetized and gone through a cesarean section. I left the hospital five days after giving birth with a healthy baby daughter and a huge scar across my stomach. I did not find out what really happened for another 11 years. Things unraveled when I was trying to conceive. I had been given a contraceptive pill for the whole time since birth. She didn't know she had been sterilized and they had been giving her contraception and allowing her to take birth control for 11 years, even though she didn't have a uterus. I had been given a concentra uh, contraceptive pill for, for that whole time since I had been given birth. And so it was not strange that I had not had my period. But I got engaged and wanted another baby, so I went to the doctor. He examined me, sat down, gave me a glass of water, and told me I had no uterus. It was very cruel. This is happening in South Africa under black rule. Now, if you know anything about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the, the apartheid 
minority rule, white minority rule government of South Africa was engaged in sterilization. They were experimenting in drugs and 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 trying to use these experimental uh, sterilization drugs, not just for women, but men. And they tainted liquor bottles. They tainted cigarettes. They tainted rice and food, other food rations with these sterilizing equipment. The scientists in South Africa were paid to develop methods of limiting and reducing the black population because they felt that if black people continued to outpace in numbers the white minority, then eventually white majority rule would be at an end and their fears were actualized. Africans unseated white people. But see, that's why this whole replace white people with black people in a white system don't mean a damn thing because the very atrocities you remember uh, uh, three years ago, black miners were, were protesting in South Africa for safer working conditions. They said, we're going underground, pulling out these minerals, pulling out these natural resources and other people around the world who never go into these mines are getting rich and we're living in poverty. We're being crippled. We're developing diseases of the lungs and our central nervous system down in these mines. And the miners took out and said, we're going to protest. And they had a sit in. They were locked arm in arm singing songs. They didn't just leave the mines because South Africans are so desperate for work. They said, if we walk out of the mines, the mine owners will just go get some more desperate, hungry people and have them work. So we're going to walk out and block the mines. We're not going to allow anyone to be exploited like we're being exploited. So they blockaded the mines and said, we want to negotiate for our labor rights. And the black South African government, Zulu government, sent in black South African uh, national police forces with machine guns and murdered these miners. And then you have all manner of injustice going on in South Africa and the black bourgeoisie, the black elites, the black Obamites, the African Obamites, black people who have risen to the halls of power, black people who have elevated within the status quo are imposing the identical anti-black policies that the whites did. They're even engaging Enforced sterilization of black women. This isn't the first time this has happened. There was an ongoing campaign to forcibly sterilize black women diagnosed with HIV in Africa. And I know some of y'all are stupid enough to be like, well, if they got HIV, they shouldn't be having babies. But something you got to learn about HIV in Africa. They don't test for HIV in Africa. They have a chest list a lot of times in Africa. There's a simple chest checklist. Have you lost weight? Have you lost 12 to 15 percent of your body weight in the last 30 to 45 days? Have you exempted, uh, exhibited a fever? You know, there are a list of symptoms that you can never get having your blood checked, never any type of test for HIV. And they define you as having. Do you live in a high risk population? Have you associated with other people? Uh who have been 
deemed HIV positive. There's this list they can give you without ever any other type of testing, and they define you as HIV. Even though you live in an environment that has contaminated water, and, and the HIV, quote-unquote, HIV symptoms are identical to malaria, identical to cholera, identical to many other uh, bacteria or parasitic infections that are common in population where the state does not keep up the infrastructure. So all over Africa, there's these people identified as being HIV positive when they are not. And then you're being sterilized on top of that. And you get sterilized in your teens or 20s because you're diagnosed as HIV and then you're 50, 60 years old. Having never developed the disease, any immunosuppressive disease. There's a lot of malarkey, for lack of a better word. I have better words for what's going on there. So now black women who fought against apartheid, who died fighting apartheid, who died ousting the white minority rule are still living under white minority rule because it doesn't matter who the officiator is. It doesn't matter who the damn president, who the legislator, who the judges, who the damn cops. It doesn't matter if everybody in uh, the upper echelons of governments is black. It doesn't matter how many black CEOs, how many black billionaires you have. If they are following a white Western system, if they were came up in a white Western institutions, have white Western indoctrination, praying to white Western gods, you're going to get white Western governance and it can't, you cannot see a white person ever in your life and still suffering under white rule. South Africans haven't learned that yet. Black people in the United States haven't learned that yet. Black people were weeping and wailing. Oh, uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, they, they, are, they, didn't, they, they fell out of the Democratic primary. Now we don't have any black candidates in the primary. And guess what? If that's the highest quality, if that's the best quality black candidates y'all got for us, I'm glad to see them go. And what did both of them, Uncle Tom bootlicking, handkerchief head, house Negroes do? Both of them uh, endorsed Biden. Kamala Harris endorsed Biden over the weekend. And just this morning, Cory Booker endorsed Biden. An overt Jim Crow racist. Both of them are right wing. Neoliberal. Uh, centrist. Right leaning centrist. So we still in 2020 haven't learned the lesson of integrationism. We still haven't learned the lesson of black faces in high places from South Africa, from our motherland to the African diaspora. I still have to see black people telling me about a black first. And the same goes for these black institutions. We got Megan Thee Stallion. She's dealing with all black folks. She had black manager, black record label, black distribution, and she got played out just like if she had signed to a white record company. Exploiting her labor, using her as a disposable commodity, a black woman having to go to court fighting black men. So even if it's not blood and bone, life and death, even when it comes to just fiat currency, that's why I'm telling y'all that all these people out here talking about 
race first, black this, I'm pro-black. That is a bankrupt ideology. The only way pro-blackness can be viable is if every black person had the same ideology. And even, or there's another way. If all black people were subjected to the identical conditions, but that's not the case anymore. We got black billionaires, black CEOs, black generals in the military. We got black people. Integration did this to us. Integration rendered pro-blackness obsolete. You got to know three things about a black person. Number one, race first. I'm still with that. Garvey wasn't wrong. But then you got to know their class. What class does this black person dwell in? And then you have to know their ideology. Race first, class second, ideology third. And there's a whole nother list beneath that. I went down in the archives. But every day, this analysis is confirmed. We got black governments, black healthcare professionals, black run institutions committing the same genocidal acts against black people as the white folks did. For the same reasons, to suppress the poor and working class masses, to exercise undue control, to deny resources and to hoard the wealth away from the masses. So black women, whether you're in South Africa or the United States of America, get a second, third, fourth opinion because black women are still getting undue abortions. I mean, un, undue sterilizations and forced sterilizations and mastectomies. They're quick to do all these type of medical procedures. There was a study way back in 1993 coming out of Kings County Hospital and found that they were doing all these unnecessary mastectomies so that for, for med- it was a medical school attached to a healthcare facility. So a lot of these medical students, these teaching hospitals are performing unnecessary procedures on vulnerable and uneducated people so that they can train physicians and all other types. I mean, in a, in a racist society and when black people elevate within racist institutions, they don't fight the racism. They only fight the racism that affects their opportunity to elevate and to earn more money. They don't fight the race, the systemic racism because that could hurt their job prospects. So. Be mindful. The struggle continues, even when you got a Negro face in the high place. Even when you got a head nigga in charge, the struggle continues because don't give a damn of who's running the institution, who founded the institution, and for whose interest does the institution operate? Who cares at the helm of it? Also, speaking on Africa, there's a new report that more people, for the first time in history, uh, refugees and displacement, more people are being displaced by climate change than are being displaced by war and conflict. There are over, and this is a, I hate these stats because I know they're well undercounted. Their methodologies are off. But right now there is an estimated 28 million displaced people across 148 countries. And I know in Africa alone, but let's go with the, 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 uh, the uh, Amnesty International World Health 
statistics. They claim that there are 28 million people displaced across 148 uh, countries. And 61% of those people are displaced because they're escaping flooding, droughts, tsunami fallout, and other environmental catastrophes. Even the people that were in Fukushima, even though it was a nuclear power plant meltdown that they're escaping, it is a byproduct of an ecological catastrophe of the tsunami. And there's only 39% of the, the 28 million people are running from war and conflict from northern Nigeria to Yemen and Syria, uh, Libya. So, and these stats are only increasing. And they don't even count because the people in Tennessee, because they're white Americans, they're not counted as refugees or displaced people, internally displaced persons. Because those white people are going to get welfare. Those, those rednecks, the same people that vote in Republican and in every election that more than 60% of Tennessee went to, to Donald Trump. Every time they're personally in trouble, they want all the welfare. It ain't going to be one white person in Tennessee that says, I don't want nothing from FEMA. FEMA is socialism. FEMA is socialist. It's a publicly funded institution using your tax dollars and giving it away to people who haven't worked for it. So all these hee-haws, all these Jed Clampets all over Tennessee are going to have their hands out. And for every dollar that a black person gets a white person can get 12 to 15 to 20 dollars it's 10 to 1 5 to 1 they got las vegas rates i played that npr very telling npr story and this was a different catastrophe this was the hurricane that hit texas and louisiana and it was a black single mother and a white middle upper middle class white man that worked for google and they both had their homes flooded in the same storm. And the white man got all his welfare while the a black woman and her children were still sleeping on somebody's couch. And she couldn't even get a car. Where the white man got a new house, new car, and his job not only gave him money, in addition to his welfare, they gave him all the time off he needed. Where the black woman had to go to work on the day of. She didn't get one paid day off from the hurricane. So white folks, and it's more than 24 million, but white people don't like those titles of refugees or internally displaced person. And like I said, these white folks, uh, Trump has promised them he's already kicked, then literally, he's making it rain. Like I said, every American farmer, every white Midwestern farmer, Iowa, Nebraska, we should all head down to Iowa and Nebraska and make them redneck, potbelly Republican white boys get up on the pole. Because we all putting money in their G-strings. Right now, $28 billion in just two years. In addition to the, the legislated subsidies, that's 28 just extra money shaved off the top. They all hoeing for us. Uh, that's a good double entendre because they hold the ground, farmers, and they hoeing on the pole. Uh, I'm a clever guy. Anyway, so climate change is real. Climate change should be top priority. And a lot of the people, of those 28 million people, a lot of them were probably thinking to themselves, I got bigger priorities. I ain't worried about global warming. It's a Chinese hoax. 
A lot of them Tennessee folks saying, oh, the Lord will make a way for him somehow when here beneath the car, God's will, blah, blah, blah. And nobody's sitting out in the middle of that tornado aftermath saying God's will is that I have my home blown to bits. So let me just lay here and let the elements take me. No, they all want aid and they ain't waiting for God. They want flesh and bone aid from man, sinful, fallen man. But I digress. Um, also got now I, I have to avoid talking about this coronavirus thing because I just can't jive with y'all something something ain't right here because every time I think about this coronavirus thing they just had their first death in Africa one death on the African continent now they call it what is COVID COVID nine nineteen virus. They they're gonna change the name. I guess they felt felt like too many people were making jokes about Corona, confusing it with the beer and all that. So they were like, let's. And there's no such thing as the coronavirus. You have to talk about the coronaviruses. There are several viruses that fall into that cate- uh, categorization. And and now they they they're testing people for coronaviruses. But the thing is, if you test people for things like E. coli and other parasites or viruses, many of us are carriers for all of these things, even though we're asymptomatic. You know, our bodies are living petri dishes with all kind of things. We all have cancer cells in our body right now, but that doesn't mean we'll develop tumors or develop metastatic cancer. But you have cancer cells that emerge every day. You know, you have disruptions in your overall homeostasis. Your immune system can handle it. You know, you have these macrophages that get rid of everything from, uh, or in white blood cells, they get rid of everything from cancers to viruses. So they're testing people for this virus and finding people who are asymptomatic, perfectly healthy, have the virus, and they're quarantining them. But if you test the average person who's lived a life, who hasn't lived in a bubble, they're going to have all these elements. So then you have to determine, are there in amounts where they are, are they still contagious? We don't know. But there's, but let me just say some things that are curious about me. Because I hear y'all, y'all all buying outside. They got people paying $80 for hand sanitizer. And what I know about that hand sanitizer is if you overuse it, it makes you more vulnerable to infections and diseases because on your body right now, on your skin, I know some of y'all don't like to think and talk about this, but you have this, what is called a flora and your body is covered by bacteria and microbes. And many of those bacteria and microbes are actually healthy and inside your body, inside your stomach, you have intestinal flora, which are all the bacteria that not only help protect you from diseases, but also produce nutrients or help you to metabolize or absorb nutrients, vitamins, minerals. You have in our vaginas, women, not ours, but y'all's, women have in their vaginas a vaginal flora that keeps their vaginas healthy, vibrant, and all the good things. I could just sit here and talk about the good things about vagina all day, but we got a show to so bacteria is our friend. Microbes are our friend. And you find that when you, you overuse sanitary products, when you take oral 
antibiotics, when you take vaginal antibiotics, or even when you take topical antibiotics or sterilizing agents, you kill off the good bacteria with the bad. And when the good bacteria is gone and your hand begins to get dried out by the alcohol and you start having these lesions, these micro lesions on your hands from overuse, long story short, Long-term use of hand sanitizers or abuse or overuse of hand sanitizers makes you more susceptible to viral and bacterial infection than just normal functioning. Just washing your hands as you normally do and practicing your normal pre-coronavirus issues. I'm just saying. But anyway, in New York, they got store owners that are being fined that are going to have to go to court because they're taking the hand sanitizer because of the hysteria and locking it behind glass cases. And they're charging as much as $80 for a $5 bottle of Purex or Purell or whatever that stuff is. So that that's the capitalism. So they're being punished for capitalism. You know, and sometimes y'all, y'all, y'all love capitalism, supply and demand, and then other times you hate it. Like, y'all confuse me. If you're a capitalist, you're a capitalist. Good times or bad times, epidemic or no epidemic, I don't support capitalism. But y'all, y'all some fair weather capitalists. Oh, we have a crisis. We have to come together. Oh, oh, you don't want to compete anymore? It ain't no doggy dog. You do you, me do me. Now you want to come together when you feel threatened, when you feel like something can harm you, you want to come together. But when everything's good for you and you get in your bank, who cares about all the suffering people? But now we got a disease that can affect the rich and the poor, the have and the have nots that don't discriminate based on your credit score. Now we all come together and no price gouging, no supply and demand. We're going to do away with supply. Even though this product is in high supply, the manufacturers and the, and the retailers are not allowed to elevate the price to reflect the demand. Are we doing capitalism or is we is or is we ain't doing capitalism? But I digress. But you'll notice, bro, Diallo, I ain't got no hands. I'm not playing that game. Because I, the numbers are not adding up for this coronavirus thing for me. Why? Let's just look at the numbers. In 2010-2011 flu season, 37,000 people died of the flu. Over 21 million people infected. In 2011-2012, 12,000. 20. 2013, 43,000. 2014, 38,000. 2015, 51,000. These numbers expand and contract. So you, any given year, you're going to have tens of thousands people. In 2018, pre-corona, you had 61,000 people die in the flu season. Over 45 million people infected. This year, of the normal flu, there have been 34,000 people dead so far. But again, these are estimates. These are not even people who have actually died. These are people who are projected to die. So about the same numbers as the 2012, about the same numbers of the 2011 
2014, 2017. Not the lowest by far, but nowhere near the highest. About the median number you would expect to die. Of the normal flu, as far as coronavirus deaths in the United States, it's only been 28 deaths. I'm sorry. Oh, wait. 22. Damn. I think it's 23. Because I think someone died this morning. But I'm going to go. When I was doing my research, which was a little less than 24 hours ago, it was 22 people. But it could be as high as 25 at this point, give or take. Estimate, I guess. It's not really an estimate. That was the hard number up until. But anyway, 22 deaths from coronavirus. Which ain't, ain't nothing nice. But as I understand, every single person that has died from the coronavirus falls within because they say the extremely young, the extremely old, and people with compromised, immunocompromised. Those are the three people who have who face the highest rates of fatality from viral infections. Small children who haven't fully developed their immune system, elderly people who have a diminished overall health, especially old people with pre-existing conditions, like if you develop the flu and you already have emphysema, uh, any type of uh, congestive heart failure, uh, you have previously suffered a stroke, you have uh, hypertension, you have some other type of ailment that that comes with age. And eating all that swine and, and, and animal products, y'all, and dairy, y'all so fine, that comes with life. Then you are more susceptible to die of any type of challenge to your body. You are more likely to die in, a, in an auto collision that a younger person would survive or a healthier person without pre-existing or complications would survive. That's just the nature of the cycle of life. I don't know if y'all need Simba to come sing that song. It's the circle of life. That's how we do. That's the reality of existence for biological creatures that we are evolved primates. So these death rates to me don't warrant the hysteria. Now, as I read, they say, well, you can be completely asymptomatic and still pass on the coronavirus. Okay, that that's for a lot of ailments and we don't have the means of testing, but I just don't see the risk matching the hysteria. Now, I have been part of epidemiological studies for infectious diseases such as HIV, uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea and tuberculosis. I worked as a diagnostic tech on a few epidemiological studies because I worked with in, at the Albert Einstein Hospital and at Rikers Island uh, Prison. And right with infectious diseases, that's where you, if you really want to know what is going to be a pandemic or epidemic, you want to watch the prisons and the jails and the penitentiaries because that's where, that is the microcosm of society. You have people in concentrated numbers who don't have the ability to move and maneuver you're constantly having people in and out and you don't have sanitary conditions. So generally, whenever there's any type of real serious plague, 
and you'll find I don't care if if if, if it's if it's the so-called HIV infection, if it's tuberculosis, if it's any type of staph infection, you'll find that prison populations are always higher concentrations of infectious diseases than the general population. And they, as for better or for worse, I'm pro-prison abolition. So I'm not celebrating this. I'm just stating it as the fact of society. Uh, you look at the prison. The second place is the nursing homes. Because they are a lot of prison conditions within the nursing homes. And then you look at the schools from preschool to universities. So there are certain institutions that serve literally as petri dishes where a lot of so-called epidemics or pandemics blow up. So this coronavirus pandemic is not functioning like it's kind of like the HIV pandemic. Remember, Haiti was supposed to be completely depopulated from AIDS and HIV. Uganda was supposed to be completely depopulated. And there were supposed to be these millions upon millions of HIV orphans. None of the predictions about the HIV pandemic came true. Not one. Go look at the uh, projections. Look at what they were saying in 91, 92. There was organizations around founded for to fight the scourge. There was the uh, um, the gay men's health crisis was was in New York at the time. And they were some of the first institutions giving away free condoms and all these information packets. And they were compiling all this data on HIV. And none of the projections held true. So there was a lot of lies and a lot of scams run on this HIV. A lot of people were made very wealthy. A lot of pharmaceutical companies made trillions of dollars in profit. But none of it came true. And here's another thing that's very curious to me. There is an actual epidemic right now today. The 2020 and the 2019 flu season has seen the most pediatric deaths in a decade. Whereas we are quarantining people, snatching people off of airplanes, locking people in cruise ships. Talking about martial law for 22 deaths from coronavirus. We've had 98 pediatric. Uh, pediatric case pediatric deaths from the the flu and this is the CDC according to Friday's weekly influenza surveillance report from CDC 48 states were experiencing a widespread flu activity in the week ending February 8th while Hawaii and Oregon are experiencing experiencing regional flu activity and Washington DC is experiencing local flu activity. By some indicators, this season is worse than last. For example, the data shows that cumulative hospitalization rate for the flu is 41.9 per 1,000 people this season compared to 25 per 100,000 in the last season. So we have a flu, not corona, not COVID-19, but there is a flu epidemic right now that no one is talking about and this flu is particularly deadly for children ages zero to four years old the flu season i'm reading on the flu season has been especially bad for children according to the cdc the last cdc report showed that 92 pediatric deaths what did i say 98 i'm sorry 92 92 pediatric i mean I, you get different sources so 
I actually got 98 from the actual CDC site, but this is in the advisory.com. So, but they claim from the city. But anyway, 92, I'm sorry, forgive me. We, we correct ourselves. This flu season has been especially bad for children. According to the CDC, the latest CDC reports shows 92% pedia- 92 pediatric deaths have been reported as of February 8th. Okay, so maybe it is up to 98 now. Okay. The highest number by week since, the highest number by week since 20, 2009. Since 2009, the highest deaths in over a decade, uh, in which 262 pediatric deaths have been re- record, uh, occurred by this point in the season. Damn. According to CDC, 62 of this season's pediatric flu deaths were caused by influenza B, while 30% were caused by influenza A. Experts are unsure as to why influenza B strands is more likely to affect younger people. Some believe that the older people may have some immunity to influenza B as it does not mutate as much as other flu strands do, meaning it's possible older people previously have caught the flu uh, circulating this season. So we have a record number of deaths from influenza A and influenza B. Influenza, the normal flu, the projected flu, that you get the shots for has outpaced infections and deaths. But I don't even see the flu shot play like last year. Everywhere you went, these the 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 what they call um and go to Diallo Kenyatta at uh I'll share this on my blog, these links. I, I gotta get cause you know I don't want y'all to take my word for nothing. Nothing. Just let me be a springboard for your research. Don't take my word for nothing. Don't take my word as gospel. Check me. Check me. But I'll share the links on my blog. So at Diallo Kenyatta, wherever, I don't know. Twitter, it's so many of this. It's too many accounts. But I'll, I'll, I'll find a place to consistently post these links about the forced sterilization. I, I ain't making this mess up. That's why, bro, I don't have time to talk about Illuminati, death cults, and secret Masonic handshakes, and reptilian overlords, or biblical prophecies. It's, I mean, the facts, the confirmed scientific facts are bad enough. We're enduring, especially for children, one of the worst flu seasons in a, since 20. 2009-2010. But everybody talking coronavirus. We got 92, between 92 and 98. somewhere I got that 98 number somewhere. I got to find where I got it. Somebody playing games. But let's go back down to the 92. I, I hope it's 92 and not 98. But confirmed by the CDC, 92 children have died from influenza B. Only 22 people have died from corona. I don't hear them shutting down the schools or preschools. So what y'all explain to me? I ain't I can't explain this to y'all because it's not making sense. The numbers don't add up. Jay-Z said men lie, women lie, numbers don't. But the numbers are lying now. What are we going to do, Jay-Z? Put out another 444 album, conscious album, hey, Jay-Z, and tell us what to do now. It's your fake ass. 
continue to digress. Let's move on. I want to talk about something I'm tired of talking about. Today's show is okay. I gotta say the thing again. It's it is y'all ain't changed. Uh, uh, shout out to the uh, Q4 Radio administrators. Y'all do a wonderful job, especially with cleaning up this studio, maintaining the equipment. I want to give y'all all the compliments in the world because I've learned from white folks, before you tear somebody down, you give them a compliment. <laughs> so there you go. Q4 staff, Q4 management, shout out to you. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be sitting here. This, I, I, y'all, y'all great. Can't give y'all enough praises. But y'all ain't updated these clocks. It says 718, y'all. Uh, and... These cocks are not synchronized. If we were doing some high stakes Navy SEAL actions, we all be dead because we have not synchronized the clocks. So this clock here got 721. This clock here is 718. Where the other? And, and where's the? I can't see the other clock over the monitor, but I'm, I don't look. Hold on. The other wall clock, I can't see it from here, but I'm sure it's not up to date. So whoever is responsible for that, can we get a memo? I'm sure all the clocks are updated at NPR, you know. And I love being on underground radio because I get to say things I otherwise would not be able to say. I, I, I'm happy to be here on underground, progressive, independent broadcasting station. It's all good in the hood, but y'all ain't did these clocks right. So anyway, I have to go by my own watch. Such a burden to have to lift my wrist. You know, see how they treat the talent here at Q4? I have to lift my wrist up to look at my watch because I can't look at the two big clocks they have here in front of me to give y'all the time. It is 8.24 according to my watch, which is probably a little off too, but the the official clocks ain't right either. So, it is 8.24, Q4 radio, AM 1680. Wait, let me, oh, I got the internet. It's actually 8.21 on the internet. I just trust the internet more than anything in the world. Thank you. God for the internet. Thank you, Al Gore, for inventing the internet. It's 821, Q4 Radio, AM 1680. Uh, oh, wait, tune in app, iTunes Radio, and Q4.org. Please support the Bro Diallo Show. Please like and subscribe and share and, and hashtag and do all the internet stuff to help sustain and, and get the word out about the Bro Diallo Show so that we can continue to put out uncensored, unfiltered, pan-African perspectives. Now, topic of the day. Today's show is reparations and political reductionism. There is a popular mantra of tangibles 2020. I got all these, and and I'm going to try to, let me not be insulting, because I want to compel these people to act like they got some damn sense. I want to compel them to my position. So I guess I have to stop insulting people. And my wife, I'm married to the most judgmental woman on the face of the earth. And she's like, you can't be talking about people, calling people out their name. So let me try to do the right thing. People, I've got a lot of individuals who come to me and they, they all say the same nonsense, the same surface mess. Reparations, no reparations, no vote. Tangibles 2020, black agenda. And they say, Bernie don't have no black agenda. They say, Bernie don't support reparations. They say, Bernie don't support tangibles. And, and so I, I, I'm 
been on the internet. Literally, I've been on the internet. Engaged in remedial, remedial political education. I would like to go. I would like to go back in time and go to your grade school civics teachers, fifth grade civics teachers, because I'm having to explain things to grown ass black folks in their 40s and 50s that they should have learned when they was in the fifth grade civics. Y'all, it's things y'all should have learned from sitting at home. Watching Schoolhouse Rock. And Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers neighborhood, this stuff, y'all don't understand the political education. That was gone. I'm literally engaged in remedial political analysis, remedial political education of grown ass black people who claim to be conscious. Who got RBG, Marcus Garvey all up, all over. They got images of Malcolm X. They claim they they down with King. And if they was around, they'd have been marching with King. They'd have been, you know, running around. Hodge, went on the Hodge with Malcolm. If if they if they was around back then, they'd be in the streets with Huey P. Newton. And now they talking from one don't vote. They don't know that Huey P. Newton ran for Congress. That the, the founders, the co-founders, one of the co-founders of the Black Panther Party ran for Congress. The other co-founder, Bobby Seale, ran for mayor of Oakland. But then you want to talk about we don't vote, <laughs> and you think you you would be more militant than the Panthers because you're not as militant as the Panthers because the Panthers engaged in electoral politics. But I digress. I digress. I am a known supporter of Bernie Sanders, but allow me to go on record. Don't tell nobody. Don't tell the white folks. Allow me to go on record saying I don't give a dirty stinking damn about Bernie. I don't care nothing about no Bernie. Take him or leave him. I don't actually support Bernie Sanders. I support Bernie Sanders platform or the platform that Bernie Sanders advocates for. This is why I did not support Obama. Call me a Tom. Whatever. I'm not pro-black. I've given up on pro-blackness. But I didn't like Obama's platform. I didn't like his health care policy. I didn't like his educational policy, privatization, charter school. I didn't like his health care, the health care mandate, which was a, a heritage foundation. I did not support his foreign policy to enhance and to engage in the war or, and continue the war on terror and to expand drone bombing. I did not like his internal policing policies of locking up whistleblowers and sustaining and legitimizing and legalizing the George Bush era illegal surveillance of civilians, warrantless wiretapping. You go all the way to down the line and you look at Obama's policy platform. I don't know Obama. I don't like Obama as a person because he's a mass murderer. I don't know how y'all get all in, in your feelings about a mass murderer, serial killer. I mean, that's how I see. But. Whatever, whatever floats y'all boats. Nicki Minaj has a, a soft spot for sex offenders. Whatever gets y'all off. I don't know. But I did not support Obama because it had nothing to do with Obama. Black, Obama could have been blacker than black. Obama could have been a bobo dread. It doesn't matter whatever rhetoric. Obama could have been. And like if Obama was what white folks, white folks said Obama was a mau mau. 
He was a uh, socialist. I wish he was a socialist, Mao Mao. I would support him then because his platform was not socialist. His platform was far right Republican. His platform was more conservative than Richard M. Nixon's platform. And then when he got into office, his administration was full of right wing radicals. But I digress. So I don't support politicians. I don't care nothing about politicians. I support platforms. And when black people have seemed to understand because we've been so caught it, and I'm not saying all black folks, because when I talk about black folks, I'm not saying that we're the only I don't say black people are the only people. When I say black people do this more times than not, other people do it more than us or in a worse way than we do it. So I don't want to be lumped in. So you won't ever hear me say we the only people. We the only people. Or you were very, very, very extremely weirdly. If I can find something that we the only people doing it, then I'll say it. But I very rarely. But black people have this warped sense of politicians being leaders. And so if the politician does not articulate exactly what we want in the way we want it, then we complain to that politician. But politicians are not leaders. They are representatives. A representative is different than a leader. And if we go back to understanding that they are representatives and if they try to be our leaders, we need to bust them back down to representative status. You know, we need to bust them down to representative status. So we do not go to politicians and say, what is your plan for us? We go to politicians and say, this is our plan for you. We got it all twisted. We don't go to say, give us tangibles, give us revelations, give us this. We say, we'll give them their platform. And so the Bernie Sanders platform is not Bernie Sanders' platform. If you look at it, it is a platform that was constructed by progressive Democrats and other left-leaning policy institutes. This is a platform that has been around since the 1940s. This is an old platform. This isn't something Bernie set down. And you say, where did he get his platform from? It's very clear of who he worked with, who he's aligned with, and who he's against. Whereas Obama's platform was literally written by Zbigniew Brzezinski, Wall Street bankers and institutions, the investment class, just like Joe Biden's. Bernie is the first pol- he's not the first politician he's the first politician that got this far if you go back and look at primaries you go look at Jill Stein you go look at he never even made it this far but if you go back and look at Dennis Kucinich you go back and look at Jesse Jackson's platform you go back and look at Howard Dean's platform now Howard Dean's sold out Howard Dean saw the light and he went over and became a corporate crat But before he was a corporate, you go back and look at his early platform. So if you look at Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders has not invented what he's advocating for. It's been passed down. This progressive agenda has been passed down between generations of politicians and has varying degrees of success. When you get a centrist or a right wing candidate like Obama, a lot of times he will caucus or lobby with the progressive end of the party and say, listen, if you can bring the progressive voters to mind, I will take a segments of your policy and integrate it with my overall policy. And then I'll throw you a few bones. 
I'll do the gay rights thing or I'll protect reproductive rights or I'll fight against the 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 uh the uh the 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 church uh the the religious policies influencing foreign policy. You know, they do little things like that, but it's never a complete platform. And that's generally what happens. So Dennis Kucinich will run for president. He's a vegan, liberal, progressive. You know, Senator Wellstone was a progressive and he was thinking about running for president. Very popular. He was more progressive than Bernie and his plane blew up in the sky. I can't get into that, but you can look up Senator Wellstone. So the Democratic Party, the big tent party has always had this agenda rolling around. And my position has always been anytime a politician, I don't care what party they're affiliated with. Republican, Democrat, Green, Libertarian. Anytime a libertarian, uh, um, anytime a politician, a representative says, hey, I'll take up this leftist platform and I'll take up these progressive policies. I don't see them as a messiah. I see them as a representative. I see them as a useful tool. I will vote for them. And at different levels of governance, we've had school board members that I've worked on a campaign of school board members who have said, I'm going to fight privatization of school. I'm going to fight for uh, a, a uh, people's curriculum, a progressive curriculum, as opposed to, to the propaganda pr- curriculum, George Washington, Cherry Tree cur- curriculum. I'm going to advocate for greater community control and for community schooling and for more resources. And I'm like, okay, city council members take on this same agenda. I've I've fought on the campaign. Lee Barnes, shout out to, to, to city council member Lee Barnes. He's out of office now. But he went in with a people's agenda, with a leftist agenda for the city council of Kansas City. I've worked on mayoral campaigns. So from president on down to local dog catcher. So don't get emotional. Don't get hype. It's not about Bernie. If Bernie abandoned the platform that he's running on, I would abandon Bernie. And if Biden picked up the platform that Bernie's running on, I'd vote for Biden, even though Biden is an overt racist. And I know, so I vote Nixon. That's Nixon actually did that. Nixon ran on a right wing platform and he found that that wasn't a viable platform. And in order to get reelected, he had to jump over to the leftists. And that's exactly what he did. Go back and look at the Nixon administration and tell me it wasn't more progressive than Obama. That's probably one of the reasons he got ousted. Even Dick Gregory said it. Where do you think the EPA came from? He took efforts to reduce foreign aggression, nuclear threats. Look it up. I don't like Nixon as a person. I think he was the scum of the earth. But the platform is the platform. The person is replaceable. As Dr. John Henry Clark said, bury the man, continue the plan. And I kind of hate talking about reformist things because for some people that's why I talk about political reductionism they can't walk and chew gum at the same time they can't understand that a at the same time I'm fighting to overthrow America I'm fighting for pan-african liberation I want my grandma to have social security I want my child to have lead-free drinking water and social security and lead-free drinking water are environmental contaminations and issues or, or end-of-life issues, but they are rooted in the political arena. Flint water uh, contamination, lead contamination, and lead contamination across the country, 
those problems originated in the pol- policy arena. They originated in the political arena. Long before it ca- t- lead water came out the, the sink, there were there were policies written in boardrooms and, and, and in government offices across the nation. So you have to understand the link. Elections have material consequences. Elections are not popularity contest. So I say that all to say a man came to me and said, Bernie, don't support reparations. And reparations is a losing political agenda. No intelligent politician would come out and directly support reparations. Even the pro reparations politics. Listen to me now. I support, let me tell you, this is why, but I ain't running for office. I fully support reparations. I fully support reparations for African people, for black people in the United States. I support reparations for African people on the continent. I support reparations for chattel slavery. I support reparations for Jim Crow discrimination. I support reparations for the ongoing Holocaust against African people within the United States. I support reparations for colonization. I support reparations for foreign interventions. I, across the board, support reparations 100%. I can't, I, thus, I'm ineligible to ever hold public office for now. And let me explain something to these reparations. Black folks are mad emotional. Mur- two things have no place in the reparations movement. Number one, morality. Reparations isn't about right or wrong. There are people who haven't been wrong to get reparations and people who have been wrong and are denied it. It's not a moral issue. If you approach it as a moral issue, because white folks knew they was wrong when they committed the, the, the atrocities. White folks knew slavery was wrong. That's why they try to cover it up as many ways as they could. They knew it was wrong. They didn't speak about slavery in polite company. Just like now, everybody go and, 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 and meet up with Barack Obama. He's going to go down in history as a mass murderer, a drone bomber, a bloodthirsty tyrant. But when you see Barack, yeah, hey, good deal. I met the president. So they didn't talk about these things in polite company, even though everybody knew it. So the wrongness ain't going to change it. The rightness or the wrongness of the issue ain't going to move anybody, pro or anti. Because they knew it was wrong when they were doing it. So morality has no place in it. Another thing you have to. Has no place is your emotions. This is you have to. What do I say about politics? You have to be what? Code. Distance. And calculating. Now when you're at home. And you're ready to go out. You can punch holes in the wall. Weep well. Burn your incense. Pray. Dance, put on your loud music and dance and flail your body around. But the moment you step out into the public arena, gain your composure. And you come at them, cold, distant, calculate. But let me tell you something about reparations. It's not a viable political. It's a it's a career killer. And the politicians who do advocate for reparations, what do they all say? We support a commission to study reparations. They're not saying give black folks money. Here's the money. Cut the check. That's what the people on the streets are saying. Cut the check. Very short sighted, emotional. And they are not saying cut the check because they think saying cut the check will get them the check. They're saying cut the check because that allows them to manipulate the masses of black people for their own ends. So they run around saying, yeah, we're going to cut the check. What's in it for black folks? Cut the check. Cut the check. 
They're not saying that to the politicians. They're saying that to the people who deserve the check. It's a hustle. It's a hustle. It's prosperity. And let, let me explain to you why. Before you can start to lobby politicians to support reparations and put reparations as part of their platform, you must make it a viable political stance. If it is not a viable political stance, whether it is right or wrong. There was a long time where unions were one of the most powerful institutions. And if you didn't get union support where you had Republican and Democrats Yelling union, union, union. I support unions. And Republican politicians were like, yes, union strong. And the anti-union movement was like, we have to make anti-unionism, anti-labor positions a viable political position. And all the way back, it took them between 1940 up until 1980. Up until the 1980s was the first crack in the armor where the anti-union movement could say, hey, we can start. But let's not even talk about unions. That's a little bit more abstract. Let's talk about every time you hear about reparations, any black person talking about reparations, they talk about the Jews and the billions of dollars of Jews. Now, I don't see anybody really besides myself. I ain't saying nobody else is doing it. I'm saying I don't know of it. That is really pointing black folks to the real re- research on the reparations for the Holocaust reparations. They're telling you about Norman Finkelstein, who wrote a book called The Holocaust Industry. And even the Holocaust Industry. And the sad thing is black folks that are out here saying we want reparations like the Jews got. They are playing black people because guess what happened to the all the funds that went to the Jews? The, the everyday people didn't get it. The regular Jews and the families and the descendants didn't get that money. That money went to the few Zionist elite and they used that money to manipulate and control the masses to their end against the people's interests. But I'll let Norman Finkelstein get into that. But I don't even want to talk about how reparations played out the way we imagine it. Money just raining down on Jewish people versus how it actually played out. The Jewish elite selling out the Jewish masses. But I digress. Y'all are so into integrate. Y'all want to be equal to your oppressor. Y'all even want equal exploitation that white folks got. But I digress. The Zionist movement started in 1897. And it was an unpopular movement. Theodore Herzl, a, a, an atheist, but I'm, I'm not even going to get into details. I just want y'all to pay attention to the timelines here. And how political movements are cultivated over the time through generations. The Zionist movement started in 1897. They didn't secure anything until 1948 when they first became secure at the nation of Israel. And even though it was established in 1948, the U.S. didn't establish diplomatic relations until 1960. Right. But let's go on. Let's look at the abortion movement. Abortion was a state issue. And the the reproductive rights people have been fighting for abortion to be a nationally guaranteed thing since 1900. And between 1900 and 1973, there was an ongoing campaign. Ongoing campaign to bring nationwide guaranteed constitutional rights to African people. They secured it in 1973, 73 years 
to the date. Actually, 1970, that's when they first started getting pro-choice, pro-abortion legislation between 1900 and up in 1970 and 1973, culminating in the Roe v. Wade case that made it a legal thing. They've been fighting it. And from 1973, that's the pro-abortion. From 1900 to 1973. From 1973 to 2020, just this year, the anti-abortion, the anti-choice movement is just now making its earliest headway into the political arena with the appointment of uh, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, a right-wing Catholic militant who's going to help them Again, make abortion illegal. So you're looking at over a century of struggle and lobbying and politicking and pushing and pulling. Let's look at the gun regulation. The guns have always been an issue in the United States since the ratification of the Second Amendment. But some of the earliest modern gun legislation goes back to 1934 because during the Prohibition era, gangsters were using sawed-off shotguns and Gatling guns. So you got the National Firearms Act of 1934. And then you had the Gun Control Act after America saw Kennedy get his brains blown out. You had the Gun Control Act of 1968. Then you had the Brady Bill 1994 after Reagan uh after Reagan had gotten shot and his uh, one of his staff or his administration, one of his uh, cabinet members, uh, Br- uh, Brady, was shot in the head and crippled for life. And when when um, on an attempted. So he started lobbying for gun control. So you've had everything from assault weapons bans to open carry. This is an ongoing fight. And that's that's the gun control fight over almost a century of, of back and forth. And then you have the nuclear weapons fight, nuclear test ban, you and, 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 and nuclear per, uh, proliferation, small arms and tactical nukes. People are still fighting to ban nuclear weapons and expand nuclear weapons. Uh, desegregation. They, we still got desegregation and busing legislation and, and cases and suits before the courts. Single payer health care has been around since the New Deal. They've been fighting for single payer for over 100 years. So what I'm saying, when it comes to reparations, black folks, when it comes to any main large scale national, because when you're born into it, when you're born into desegregation, when you're born into voting rights, you were born, you you didn't have to participate in the Voting Rights Act. Women got reproductive rights, family planning, contraception, all these things you take for granted. You don't realize the centuries of short, literally the vote, women voting. The suffrage, women's suffrage, women were literally throwing themselves in front of cars. Women in this country had to engage in a literal jihad to get the right to vote. And so a lot of these things you take for granted. So you want something from the government. You want a fundamental change in the governmental policy. You want fundamental change. You want a redistribution of wealth. And you want it now. Because everything that you take for granted, you don't realize the decades of struggle and politicking and negotiating and compromising and securing concessions of advancing and losing ground and gaining ground that went on. Now, the first national reparations movement was in 1987 in Cobra. The first and mainly as far as I'm concerned, I don't consider 
ADOS, or foundational black Americans to be part of the legitimate reparation struggle. They are usurpers. And I've done, I've talked about them scumbags enough. And every time I mention ADOS, I got somebody in my timeline telling me I don't understand ADOS. (laughs) It's just like religion, like any other cult. Jehovah's Witness come to your door and I'm like, man, this is an oppressive cult. Oh, you just don't understand the light of Jehovah. That's what cults say every time. They always accuse their detractors of not understanding. Because if you saw the light and they're 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 becoming a cult. They glazed over and they all repeat the same mantra. It's sick. But y'all and Yvette can get out my face with that. I don't understand. I understand it too well. That's why I know to shun it, to denounce it. But I digress. To understand the political fight. So anytime you want major constitutional level changes in this country. They are even white folks when they want something of that scale. Look at how they have to fight. So the first thing you have to do if you want reparations to be viable, you don't start saying I don't vote for the president unless he support reparations. You're playing yourself. You're rendering yourself what they call a fringe movement. And you have a lot of fringe movements in this country. This sovereign citizen level fringe where you might get and you know, they have congressmen. They have fringe congressmen like Tea Party congressmen that come up and put forth all this weird legislation. You got congressmen that want to abolish Social Security. You got congressmen that want to abolish the social, uh, public school system and destroy the Department of Education. You have congressmen that want to implement a theocracy and they want the Ten Commandments to become to replace the Constitution. You have co- people that get elected to office and the way they get elected to office is they live in a district where they can run on these fringe things. And then when they go to office, they give rhetoric. They get on the House of the floor, they get on the floor of the Senate or the House of Representatives and they say this crazy stuff and it goes into the congressional records. But when they go into their committees, they vote along the same mainstream lines of their party. But they give lip service. So we'll have black politicians go into office and say, yes, reparations to get elected. And then they go in and sign off on anti reparations legislation. They go in there and support Biden's and, and, and mainstream mainline Democratic issues. And so if you do not want reparations to become a fringe issue that where it's able to you get a few politicians in predominantly black districts in the south and in the north, you know, like Chicago's first district, my district is a lot of black folks. You can get up on a platform and say, I'm going to go to Congress and fight for reparations. And then when you get to Congress, you can walk down on the floor and say, I'm submitting this bill for reparations. And you ain't got no co-conveners, no uh, no co-signers or co-sponsors uh, of the bill. And then you go into committee and you sign an off on giving white farmers wealthy corporate farms in the Midwest a billion dollars. So your rhetoric does not reflect your actual policy. That's politics. So saying I'm going to vote for you if you support reparations, you're setting yourself up to be played. You're setting yourself up to be fringe. And there are fringe issues all over the countries. And yes, there are times where fringe issues do become mainstream. But fringe issues become mainstream issues or viable political platforms only when they start to realize what I'm trying to tell black folks right now. There's a certain way this thing works. You look at political historical precedents. 
If you want what somebody got, you got to look what they did to get it. And a lot of times we just refuse to do it. We rather listen to their rhetoric about how they got it. Even now, they everywhere I turn, black folks talking about economic literacy and closing the economic gap. Guess what? White people used to have a gap. White people were some of the poorest people. Europe was nothing but a land of warfare and plagues. And Africa and the so-called New World and Asia and, and, and Southeast Asia, the, they used to call it the Spice Road. They used to call Africa the Gold Coast. The gold and diamond coast. How did white folks close that economic gap? How did that little sickly nation of France and that little cold sickly nation of Europe become the economic powerhouse? How did Europe close the economic gap with Africa, Asia and the New World? From getting educational grants to go to African universities (laughs) through conquest. But we know how they did it. But we think we can do something. You want to close the gap with them by doing the opposite of what they did to close the gap with us. But I digress. So what black folks have to do? Well, shoot, I'm running out of time. So we're going to have a part two. We're going to talk about specifics of a black agenda. What the black agenda is, what it isn't, what it should be and what it shouldn't be. How can we mainstream and mainline it used to be black desegregation was a fringe issue and they used to call rabble rousers and troublemakers black folks talking about sitting in front you make it and then black people will come tell you you're making trouble for us you're making all that noise but before the civil rights movement could go to white folks and say white folks y'all gonna have to make some changes they had to get internal discipline they had to get an internal support mechanism You know, so the day you can go to any candidate and say, listen, here's you ain't what you're going to do for us saying, listen, this is what we have for you. We don't want to know your policy because we've already written a comprehensive policy platform. And with this comprehensive policy platform comes. Fifty million dollars in donations or campaign funds comes a guaranteed. Five hundred thousand dollars, five hundred thousand votes. We can put sixty thousand canvassers, phone bank operators in your office right now. And. Good publicity across the board in all progressive black media and black media in general. We'll even have some gangster drill rapper do a song in favor of you. It's negotiation. We go to people do it because it's the right thing to do. That doesn't work in the United States. And I'm just being hyper real with you. But we're going to talk about the specifics uh, tomorrow. So we're going to have to do a part two of reparations and political reductionism. Black people at 13 percent of the population. Now, we can be very powerful. We're in a position to be an extremely powerful group. But we, we, we squander a lot of our powers because we don't properly utilize it. And when you have a tool or a weapon. It could be an effective things to build power or it could be a greater threat to you than to your enemies, depending on how you approach and understand and use it. Anyway, Bro Dialysis Show, Q4 Radio, AM 1680. We're going to get into this in more detail and we're going to talk about what candidates, what platform, what party best serve the long term and short term interests of African people. So, uh, you know. 
there's there's rules to the game. There's a methodology to this. And and uh we'll talk because and then, you know, last week I got a guy that called me and it's like I want to be part of a movement. And I wasn't happy with the answer I gave him. So I have to go and create the conditions so I can give you a better answer to that. So anyway, the struggle continues and we will win without a doubt. Bro Diallo show Q4 radio AM 1680. I will see you brothers and sisters or hear you be with you live and direct Wednesday. We're going out. Uh, boss deeper. I'm going Oh,